Welcome to Dissecting Education, where we take a spherical look at the education landscape from many vantage points. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks. Glad you're here with us today. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dissecting Education. Today's guest is Brian Traskos. He is a somatic intelligence expert and co-creator of sensation-based motivation coaching. He is a nationally recognized expert for his work in coaching, training, and mentoring leaders of health and wellness service organizations, as well as human development professionals in holistic somatic coaching practices and the science of trauma-informed motivation. Initially educated as a physical therapist at the State University of New York in Buffalo and the world-renowned Craig Hospital in Denver, Colorado, Brian has experience in neuropsychology, somatic psychology, and energy medicine practices. Currently, Brian serves as both president of Motivation Beyond Measure and the director of the Institute for Rehabilitative Chai Gong and Tai Chi. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Melanie. I really appreciate it. So start us off. Um, tell us a little bit about your business and, and what you do for CEOs and entrepreneurs and executives and, and, uh, and what got, how you got started. Oh, yeah. Wow. Fantastic question. So I actually, um, our, our company is called New Health, and we have two divisions of New Health. One is the Institute for Rehabilitative Qigong and Tai Chi. And I know that's a mouthful. And the other division is Motivation Beyond Measure. And both of those uh, divisions, that company, we actually certify professionals in methodologies that, that we've created. Um, on, the, on the IRQTC or Institute for Rehabilitative Qigong and Tai Chi side, um, I train rehabilitation professionals like physical therapists and occupational therapists and massage therapists, how to use Tai Chi and Qigong in their rehabilitative practices with their patients. How to teach them how to use uh, body-mind methodology, these, these ancient holistic practices that I think it's, it's timely to bring those back into what we're doing in today's world. Because we're like we're living in a fast-paced rat race kind of experience. I mean, stress is super high. Uh, patients of all types, no matter what they're dealing with, are super stressed. And so these tools that are so good at helping to balance people's autonomic nervous systems are also really great for strengthening bones and muscles and, and ligaments and tendons and nerves and all those kinds of things. And it's just a beautiful marriage together and something I've been doing in my own PT practice for over, over 20 years. So that's, um, so that's what happens at the IRQTC. Now, Motivation Beyond Measure um, is we work with CEOs, we work with, uh, yes, executives, and we also have a, a training institute there as well, where, again, we train therapists and coaches how to use somatic coaching methodology with their clients. So how do we help? Uh, so we're helping coaches learn how to tap into their client's body wisdom. Um, we, know, we know our bodies store memories, if you want to think about it that way. And those memories can be traumatic memories or they can be jubilant memories from our past. But whatever way we think about it, um, our, our behaviors are in large part driven by our sensory experiences, how we feel in our bodies at a sensory level, drive our behaviors, drive our decision making in very profound ways that we don't recognize. And this is something that um, I feel like 
coaches are, and therapists are really missing that when they're talking about trying to motivate people or trying to help people take action in a direction that they've said they wanted to take, but they haven't been able to do. If we try to just do that intellectually with people, you know, um, uh, we have all these intellectual defense mechanisms, right? If you've ever tried to convince anybody to do anything at all, even, even like do their homework, if we're talking about education or try to force someone to learn something or be motivated to be interested in what you're teaching, it just doesn't work. And we try to rationalize people to, to take action and it just doesn't work because we have all these rational defense mechanisms. But with somatic coaching, we, we actually drop into the subconscious experience and we help to have uh, find ways to help people motivate themselves more effectively and efficiently. So that's what we do at Motivation Beyond Measure. I love both of these concepts. So as a, as a real uh, believer in mindfulness and, and I have a, a, a lot of peripheral uh, not not expertise in any stretch, but um, knowledge through through a good friend of mine who is a DBT therapist, and they mm. obviously that method of therapy focuses very much on mindfulness and self awareness, yep. and just years of of knowing her and understanding her practice. Um, it's really made me uh, even more cognizant about the idea how important that mindfulness element is, and that mm -hmm. that comes in both those pieces, right? Is understanding how it affects. Uh, I, I just finished up a book, and I'm going to. I'm already forgetting who the author is, but um, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, and yeah, by Bessel van der Kolk. Yes, thank you yeah. for that. So I, did, I, I would quote it in the show notes, but I, uh, yeah. I had already forgotten. But, but really great book about how we uh, kind of physicalize those emotives mm -hmm. um, and how they come back. And you see it in, you certainly see it in adults, but you see it in children as well. And those, those initiatives that have gone on in the education world to try to start to connect um, with some of that, I mean, social emotional learning was a, kind of a first um, thing that took hold in in the education field that started to talk at least about that level. But it did still didn't get into um, as much of kind of the work that you're doing that subconscious level um, mm. awareness. So I just I find both of those kind of uh, strategies very um, very interesting. So. So tell us how you how you like got started and you said you you practice yourself so that's on one side of it but how did you what's your origin story well, you know, uh, so I'm a physical therapist by education. So I've been a PT for 30 years and one of my very first I was so blessed. Um, Melanie, one of my very first jobs out of uh, college was at Craig Hospital in Denver, Colorado. Now, Craig Hospital is a world-renowned rehab center for people uh, healing from brain injury and spinal cord injuries. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, it was really interesting because I was in this um, world-renowned center and we had all the best technologies, all the best doctors, all the best therapists. It was really just amazing. The Shangri-La rehab was like the top of the top. I went to the top really quick. Somehow I found myself there. And what's really interesting was that, you know, the doctors would predict, uh, you know, had do, do prognoses on their on their patients. And certain patients, they'd say things like, you know, they're never going to walk again. They're never going to talk again. They're never going to do this again. And they would. They would beat all the odds and they would come back and live amazing lives, even though it looked like it just wasn't going to happen. You know, in the other patients, they would have prognoses and say, oh, they're going to be fine. It's a minor injury. Look at the MRI scan. There's just a little punctate shearing here or something like that. And these people wouldn't get out of coma. And I was blown away by that. I thought, 
you know, because when I went to school, there was this idea of, you know, what you see on the x-ray, what you see on the MRI is what you're going to see in the patient. So understand like this part of the brain is damaged. You see this kind of thing and that's what it looks like. But I was just really surprised that that's not how it worked. And some people defy the odds in their healing. Actually, you know, I was, um, I was a PT at Craig when the Columbine shooting happened. Oh, and wow. and uh, so my patient, one of my patients was a Columbine survivor. And so working with uh, working with with Pat, Pat was the boy who jumped out of the window. He got, you know, he was on the cover of uh, Life magazine. I was actually, believe it or not, in Life magazine with Pat in a, in a photo Wow, doing his rehab. But um, Pat was one of those patients who beat the odds and it came back from from um, odds that looked like he wasn't going to be able to do what he did. And, and now he's living an amazing, amazing life. He's got no kids, works in the financial sector, married, he's living a full life. And what was really surprising to me is like, why wasn't that, why wasn't that link up there? Like, what was it really all about? And so it made me want to start understanding more deeply what really um, promoted healing. What was healing really about? Because it obviously wasn't about a physical to a physical. It had to be, there had to be some other component in that. So really 30 years ago, I started to really explore these things. And I started to study people who got better. Like the, I started to study the people who beat the odds. And I really started to understand that they were doing something differently, whether they knew it or not, than the people who weren't beating the odds. And they were following kind of like a set of laws, if you will. Mm -hmm. And now I call them the natural laws, like the how, how nature operates. They were in some way function the same way that nature operates. Mm -hmm. You know, they're following the natural laws, like what we call the law of polarity and the law of non-resistance and the law of relativity. They're following these things. And using those laws to help promote their own physical healing, but also healing on deeper levels of emotionality and relationships and spirituality connections and all those types of things. And so as I started learning more about that, I started to integrate it into everything I did. Everything really for me became about body-mind processes that we couldn't separate the body from any other part of, of who we are as humans. Mm -hmm. And we bring that together and we leverage all parts of that. We start to promote uh, healing on all, all levels of who we are. So I guess, I don't know if that answers your question or not around my origin story, but that's really what kind of got me fired up. No, it did very much. And I, you know, like I said, the, the body mind connection is such, um, in, in some ways, an ignored element of, mm -hmm. um, I'm always fascinated by these stories, like you said, of people that beat the odds, you know, people who, who somehow find a kind of somehow inner strength that is beyond even when they're being told that that's not possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. that's, there's just something in that. And I think that that's an amazing um, thing. And what a, what a cool way to kind of to trans transport that curiosity and that belief into something that is um, meaningful for other people and right. And be able to kind of proliferate it to other yeah. therapists, other PT, other, you know, um, other practitioners, that kind of thing. So um so tell us about, tell us an interesting story. Some of the, the things that you're proud of about um, some of your clients uh, without, you know, disclosing anything you don't have to, but just uh, success stories that, that you're really proud of. Well, you know, again, going all going all the way back to uh, when I worked at Craig, I mean, there's a there's a bunch of stories. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, about again, about a young man who had a uh, who had a sledding accident. And I remember that uh, when I looked at his MRI, 
um, you know, I, I held up the MRI to the to the lighted background, and it looked like it looked like half his brain was gone. Like like literally, had someone had smudged it off, and I thought this can't be right. It's got to be a, a bad film or something. But I pull out another one, and it, it's there again. And so sure enough, this young man had lost like half of his half of his brain. And the doctor is one of the one of the people. The doctor said he's going to be a vegetable for, for the rest of his life, sort of thing. And his family had so much faith in him and and treated him just like all their other kids right there are five kids in the family and he didn't get a pass on anything because he was and this is a very faith-filled family very loving family mm -hmm. um they actually kind of took me in as being part of their family i was also his therapist mm -hmm. and you know again this young guy um he he volunteers now you know he, he has he has a little bit of income but he's able to um uh, be independent with all of his activities of daily living he walks he does all those things and and this is remarkable considering he only has half of a, half of his brain that he's working from because of the accent that I, that he was in Mm. So kind of it's like physical, like there's an amazing thing. You know, I've also uh, worked with patients who have had horrific back pain. That seems to be like another avenue I've, I've lived in because I actually lived with chronic back pain for 27 years mm. until, I, until I healed that myself. Mm -hmm. And I really understood of what, what really back pain is really, really about on a very deep emotion, somato emotional level. Mm -hmm. And through, I, I remember um, very vividly, I got a call one time from a uh, from a, a person and they said you know uh, Chad is laying in the field he can't get up can you come out to the field I said well I can't come to the field because I've got a clinic full of people but if you can get him here I'm happy to take a look at him so whoever's in the field with uh, this guy loads him up into a car and brings him to the office and 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 he's in the back of the car they couldn't he couldn't even get out of the car his back was in such is bad shape and spasm shape. So he's laying in the back of the car. So I go out of the building, to, out of the parking lot, and I'm in the back of the car with him. And, and I do a couple of tests to make sure like there's no nerve damage. I mean, I did a screen to make sure we weren't dealing with something that was um, surgically, you know, he needed surgery, emergency or something like that. So I do all those screens. And then as I'm working with him and kind of helping him do some breathing and some movement kinds of things, you know, I, uh, I'm asking him questions. I'm kind of taking him through this somatic coaching process that we call it sensation-based motivation coaching now. But at the time, it really didn't have a name yet. I was, uh, I was working with it. And so I'm working him through these questions, you know, and it occurs to both of us that there's something that he's not saying right? That there's something he's holding back. And I said to him, I said, Hey man, you know, I just, is there something you need to say to somebody? And he just starts breaking down in tears. And he's like, yeah. I said, what's going on? He said, my brother is coming into town today and it has to do with him. I said, listen, man, you don't have to tell me, but you got to tell somebody. And he's like, can you send my girlfriend in? So I said, she was, she was waiting outside of the car. So I said, you know, can you go in and talk to him for a couple minutes? He has something he needs to share with you. And I just kind of stood outside of the car for about, you know, 15 minutes or something like that, waiting to make sure he's going to be okay. So he, he has this conversation. I go back into the car and he's actually moving now. 
He's actually starting to move. I talked to him the next day later, he's up and walking around. And I talked to him the next day after that and his pain is like down almost to zero. And so I've done this again and again and again with people and really, again, understanding that when there's a, when there's a held emotional expression that has very high charge associated with it, it compounds itself into physical contraction in the body. And that's part of why you know we do this coaching methodology because it's not just about me getting in there and doing massage or stretching or something like that with them or strengthening it. It's about allowing the space for and walking someone to their own solution. Everyone already knows what the problem is. They just, they have to be guided to it. And that's what we do with that methodology. So that's just another, another uh, story I'd love to share with people because this really was so profound for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and every time you have an experience like that, you just, it, you feel more gratified and you feel like this stuff really, really is connected. It really is powerfully important. Yeah. So how do you, how do you begin to, for example, how do you help your clients start to see and integrate these techniques as part of their coaching? What are, what are some of the kind of entry level steps when someone is, okay, I, I believe in the mind body connection. How do I help my clients that way? Um, give us a feel for kind of what that process looks like. Yeah. So the first thing we, we uh, as far as our students are concerned, you know, because really we certify other professionals to do this work. So with our students, the first thing we have to help them have is have their own experience to really help them connect um, with themselves so that they understand what's cooking inside of their own inside of their own systems. Right. And a lot of times the best time to do that is when there's some something going on, right? When there's some type of what I like to call charge happening. And the charge could be an emotional charge. It could be a physical thing going on like back pain, or it could be um, like an emotional thing like heartbreak or loss or anger or whatever, but there's something charged, something going on. And then there's three basic questions that that we ask people to start with. And the first question is, where do you, where do you feel it? And what does it feel like? Where do you feel it and what does it feel like? Mm-hmm. And it, inevitably, people will answer with an emotion. I feel anger in my chest or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say, okay, hang on a second. What are you actually feeling? And they'll say, what do you mean? It feels like anger. So, well, what are the sensations? Mm-hmm. How do you know it's anger? How do you know it's not joy? Right. Well, because it doesn't feel like joy. What, what's the difference between joy and anger? Like, what are the, what's the sensory experience that you're actually having? Not right. the story that, you, that, we're, that we're adding on to the sensory experience. Because every emotion is entangled with a story, right? Sadness, anger, hey, it, 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 it's a sensation, but it's also a story laid over top of it. And as soon as we become beholden to the story, we get polarized in our thinking. And it's very difficult then to move out of it. But when we start at a sensory base, we get down to the raw data of their emotional experience. So we ask people, what are you feeling and what does it feel like on a, on a sensory level? So we get people to get very granular on the quality of what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. So it feels like burning in my chest. It feels like, you know, uh, a, a hole in my stomach, what, whatever it is. It feels like tingling in my throat, wherever. Um, so we get people to that, to that level. So where is it? What do you feel? And then, then the question we ask them then is, what are you making that mean? Right. Right. So now we're adding that back on. Right. Now you're putting the story back onto it, but with an understanding of what those sensations really were about. 
Exactly. What does it actually mean? So we take out the details of the story now and say, what, is the, what are you making that story mean? Mm-hmm. And the reason we come back at it that way is because one of the things we teach our students, Melanie, is that an understanding of how our subconscious mind filters reality that, you know, there's, there's millions and millions and millions of billions, actually, of bits of information all around us all the time. And we can't possibly filter all of it because we, you know, we don't have the capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. But if reality, if you and I are standing in the same room together, then, then we're surrounded by the same bits of reality, right? Mm-hmm. But have you ever been in a room with someone and you're filtering a reality completely differently? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Definitely. Yeah, that's normally the person you live with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. kind of, kind right. of, thing, right? Exactly. So, so you're filtering. So how is that possible? How is that possible if we're in, if we're sitting in the same reality, but we're filtering it differently? It's because our subconscious mind sets up a filtering construct based on our past experiences. Right. So we have to recognize that we are always making meaning all the time of what's going on around us, but mm-hmm. we're making meaning of it differently. And we're making meaning of it specifically based on an experience we've had in the past. Right. And then we keep reliving that meaning again and again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So th- that's one of the very first places we start with our, with our, um, with our folks. It's a four-step process that we have become aware of decode, modify and reframe. So if we're talking about changing our behavior or our outcomes in our lives, which is, which is the function of coaching, right? It was always based on like, what new results are you working towards? The first thing you have to do is become aware of what's actually happening first, like what's really happening, not the story we're making up Mm -hmm. and then to decode the meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. And when we do those first two steps, it opens up a gateway in order, in order to have change occur. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, you know, there is so much to unpack there because we spend most of our time adding ad hoc reasons for what we have experienced physically, right? Or, or emotionally or, or some combination of both. Right. And what's really interesting, I, you know, I think everyone does, but I'm, I'm acutely aware of my kind of mind body connection because I feel all the feels in, you know, I, I hold everything in my hips and my stomach, right. Mm -hmm. uh, In yoga, we talk about holding like many women hold emotion in their hips and they don't, a lot of people don't even understand really what that means until you've Mm -hmm. been kind of on the other side of it. Once you've had like the release of it and then you're like, Oh, got it. Yeah. Okay. I got it. And so, uh, but I'm definitely acutely aware I've had uh, basic stomach issues since I was 13. And it's mm-hmm. always surrounding an emotional component um, that manifests itself in a physical ailment of some sort that, that many, 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 many doctors have never been able to figure out what it is because I don't think it actually is something, right? It is, is literally a, an emotional, it's just where I hold stuff. And that, but I've certainly over you know a lifetime have created ad hoc stories to say, well, that must've been because that must've been because, you know, and, and so it's fascinating to think about the, the way that we do that and how, how just intrinsic it is to, uh, instinctive, I guess, to do those, to do that. The other thing I did my, and my listeners will have heard this before, but I did my dissertation on this concept, a psychological contract, which is mm-hmm. the expectations that we take, particularly most of the researchers around the workplace, I believe it has broader connotation, but the expectations that we take into the workplace um, when we get a job that's based on our lens, our past experience mm-hmm. that forms our lens, what we know about the company from like 
um, or, or the organization from kind of exterior factors, media or their PR firm or, or whatever, friend that worked there or something. Um, and then what they're actually told, like in mm -hmm. an interview situation, right? And, they, and there's a couple other elements, but they form, you form this opinion. And then when you go into the job, if it doesn't meet what you think, you have all these negative reactions, right? right. But that psychological contract was never fully articulated anywhere, right? It is something right. that we have internally based on this lens that we've created. Mm -hmm. um, and But it can drive a lot of emotions around the workplace and around um, your experience in the workplace if that doesn't, if those things don't match up. Yeah, totally. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're swim we don't know the water we're swimming in right. really is what it's like, you know, there's that joke about the two fish and one yeah. fish lo looks at the other fish and says, Hey, what's this water they keep talking about? <laughs> you know, it's that we don't realize that we're swimming in our own, um, in our own filters and our own perceptions constantly, but they're so we're, we're so in them all the time. That's mm -hmm. just what you're saying, that when our filters don't match up to to something in our environment, we think that everything is wrong or everything's off when actually that's, believe it or not, in my opinion, the very best opportunity for growth. That's where the best opportunity for growth occurs mm -hmm. is right in that situation where our environment does not match our our water that we're living in. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, all right. So I'm going to switch gears um, on us. I always do. Um, and tell me a, an education memory that made a big impact on you. Oh, gosh. You know, um, great question. So I, I think two things. One is both my parents are educators. Hmm. So I grew, I mean, I grew up in a household of, of just education. Like that's mm -hmm. what, that's what it was. But I would have to say one of the most important memories was I had to be probably four years old or so. And my mother was the head nurse of pediatrics in the local hospital that uh, in our town that I grew up in. But she was also a teacher at the nursing school, which is attached to the hospital. So she did lectures a couple times a week. And she used to bring me in as the um, uh, demo child. Right. Like, you know, so it's basically used to be like, okay, so here's this child's this or that kind of thing, teaching these nursing students. Mm -hmm. And so I remember that. And I thought that that was pretty interesting. My mother seemed to have a position of authority and respect but the other part was like, she, after I would be used as a demo, I would sit at this little desk. Um, and so the classroom was still like happening back here, but I'm in the corner drawing with my crayons. And right next to the table is a full-size skeleton, like a life-size skeleton. And I remember like just like staring at this skeleton and wishing I knew the name of every one of the bones. And, and so at five years old, I asked my mother to start teaching me the names of all the bones of the skeleton. Mm -hmm. And so, but I was a very young person. I could just name all this, all, you know, 206 bones of the skeleton. I could name all of them um, because I mean, that it was fascinating. It was so interesting. So I was in this educational environment and mm -hmm. I was piqued to interest and to learn. I was so excited about about learning about anatomy. And I wanted to be a teacher actually. And so the part two of this, I remember when I was in like eighth grade or something and we're doing a kind of our career planning, like, you know, so we do like, where are you gonna go to college and what are you gonna do? And that sort of thing as a part of a school activity. And I told my father, I said, dad, I wanna be a teacher. And he said, no, you don't. He said, you know, I'm, he said, I'm a teacher. You don't get enough respect. Um, you know, the pay is really terrible, whatever, like all the reasons why being a public school teacher was just like, not, not a good thing. Right. And, and so I went on to become a physical therapist and 
And, but I still had this chip on my shoulder. <laughs> like I was like, I really, I really wanted to be a teacher. And, you know, now I am, right. I got to, I got to actually follow both my dreams of knowing the body very intimately of that skeleton and, and my mother's background of knowing anatomy and physiology. And I also got to now living the dream of my father and being an educator, a lifelong educator as well, and marrying those two things together. So it goes to kind of two memories that for me come together um, and, and that I'm really, really excited about. That's awesome. I laugh a little because uh, I'm my mom is, uh, was a second grade teacher and she had one of those life size skeletons in her room because um, she taught advanced science. So uh, they broke up science and math to have advanced you know, levels um, and move students yep. around at that time. And uh, I remember all I wanted to do with that skeleton is dance with it. <laughs> I used to stay in her classroom when she had to, you know, stay after school and do the teacher thing. And I would come in and just like dance around the skeleton. So we had very different perceptions of uh, speaking of lenses on, um, you learned a lot skeletons. more uh, than, than I did by, from that skeleton. So. Yeah, but I can't dance at all. So maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe you, you got your dancing shoes on. I can't dance, I have two left feet when it comes to dancing. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I was a dancer for like 22 years. So. <laughs> yeah, was, uh, I, I used the skeleton for what it was good for, for me. I'm, uh, but yeah, I appreciate that. You know, it's funny. My um, parents were both public servants. My dad was a police officer. My mom was a teacher and same idea. They wanted something better for me, but at some point, particularly on the teaching side for me, and I wasn't really interested in criminal justice per se, but, <laughs> but, um, but my, you know, my heart has always been um, kind of tied to that, that educational environment, that idea of, of teaching others, of, of gathering knowledge and then sharing it. And really, I have a, a, a colleague, a former colleague um, named Dr. Simi Rayford, and she was on a, a different podcast for Future of School. And she said, um, she said, more important than sharing knowledge is inspiring children to want to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that I love about education most is that that inspiring people to want to it, whether they're little kids or adults, right? Just inspiring people to want to bring more knowledge into their life, right? And I'm sure that you probably see that when you, uh, as you work with your clients and just inspiring them to want to be better coaches, to want to be better PT, to want to be better, you know, in, in the thing that they do by, you know, helping others, like be better at helping others by gathering more knowledge, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I would actually I agree 100% with that. And I, I think about it also in terms of insight, like, I, that's really like one of the things I really love about sharing knowledge is, is, is seeing a look of insight on someone's face, like kind of like breaking a thought, like, you know, you know what it looks like when you when you um, bring something to someone and, and they kind of do that kind of like, it's like a thought stopper, right? You, you've yeah. stopped there. You've stopped their mental um, tape player that mm -hmm. plays the same thing all the time, and skipped it out of the groove. Mm -hmm. And so their their thought is stopped. And you've actually maybe even for a moment, it just get them in a new groove just for a moment. And then they see that oh my god, there's actually a different possibility here. Mm -hmm. Now the needle might skip back into the old groove again, but but you can never erase that the insight that there's a different possibility. And that's one of the things that really lights me up about, about education. And, you know, even working with PT clients for all these years, not even, not even the students that I teach, but talking about PT clients, you know, I, there's some research that the, the better education that a, 
a pain client receives, let's say for instance, is directly equated to the outcome that they have. Mm-hmm. So the better education that a patient receives, they get better outcomes. You know, at a certain point in time, I realized it didn't matter like uh, how good I was as a manual therapist or like how many exercises I knew. If I couldn't convey insight to my patients, their, their capacity to improve was going to be capped somehow. So I really, um, at that time, I, that's when I really kind of took on that teacher role and said, wait, I can be a teacher. You know, it doesn't have to look like I'm standing in front of a classroom, but I can have an educational component with every one of my, uh, uh, every one of my direct care clients. And when I did that, really started to see big changes occur in terms of people's outcomes, their progress, um, re-referral, people would want to come back to, to uh, referrals from other people. Like it really helped my practice immensely just to add that little bit in. And, and expose someone again, help them become, that's that first step again, actually, right? Yeah. Become aware of something different. Become aware that, that there's a different reality out there than what we are filtering all the time, because what we're filtering automatically gets us the results that we're getting. Mm-hmm. So the only way to get a different result is to become aware of something different first and then do something with it or about it. Right. Yeah. Awareness before action. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Tell me, and this uh, may be something you haven't ever thought about, but what would, let's say, a, a K-12 teacher somewhere somewhere in the spectrum from elementary to high school, how could they help students better connect with their kind of physical and emotional mind-body connection? How, what, could they, what could educators do to kind of integrate that into their teaching style? Oh, well, well I actually, just go right back to what we had talked about before. Where do you feel it in your body? Mm-hmm. And what does it feel like? I mean, yeah. just like just doing that as, hey, before we even start today's lesson, right. like it could work this way, right? So be, let's, even before we start today's lesson, let's just sit for a second, take a few deep breaths, notice what do you feel in your body and what does it feel like? Go ahead and write that down. You know, so let's become more aware of our interoception, like what we're experiencing inside of us in relation to what's going on outside of us. Yeah. Right. So, and then what are you making it mean? Like, like just those questions and, and then certainly working with uh, kids that are maybe in having experienced anxiety or distress or stress, you know, whether it's test anxiety or whether it's peer relationship anxiety, whatever it is, it's the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Pull kids aside and say, Hey, take a couple of deep breaths. Mm-hmm. What are you feeling in your body? What exactly are you feeling and where, and where do you feel it? And let's get it down to the sensory level. Just that alone really can help people become aware. And just becoming aware of that actually mm-hmm. creates a natural break between what's actually going on and the story that we're creating. Mm-hmm. Just that alone is very, very powerful. That, I mean, that's what I would suggest. I mean, I think it's, it's just amazing. And also the other, other thing that I think all, all kids need is more movement too. Yes. I think, you know, I think we need to be moving our bodies more as a part of our regular um, scheduled program, if you will. Right. Yeah, so yeah. whether we're in a science class, like get up, do some shaking, move, and then ask that question. Right. Now, what are you feeling in your body and what does it feel like? Right. Right. So right. is it, is it, is it that easy? Can we actually change our, um, our emotional, cognitive, intellectual experience just by moving our bodies. 
right? The answer is yes. We know that from science, but experientially, you know, people are going to be much more motivated if they've had their own experience around it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Movement piece is, is so critical. We, as a society in general, all ages, right, are, are just moving much less than, yep. than ever before. And it's, I, I moved from Florida to Colorado in 2019. And the amount of movement, greater amount of movement that I do here in Colorado is exponentially more just in the realities of kind of the outdoor lifestyle that, that mm-hmm. is Colorado, right? Um, and, you know, Flor- my longtime Floridians will say we have an outdoor lifestyle because it never snows or whatever, but uh, it's just a, it's a very hot, very sluggish climate and people just don't move as much. They stay indoors, they stay in the AC, you know, and um, instantly adding that into my, into my life instantly elevated all of yep. my happy emotions, right? It just, it just did. And it was, it was like testament number one of just mm-hmm. the simplest thing. And I wasn't doing anything crazy. I'm kind of doing some crazy stuff now, but when I moved here, I was just walking. I was just getting yeah. out and walking from my house to the pub or from my house to the store or whatever, instead of getting in my car and driving and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. So um, just those little things. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. You know, and I know all about Colorado, right? When I was at Craig, that's where yeah, Craig is. Yeah. It's in Englewood. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I lived in Colorado for 10 years and the same thing, like the active, the super active lifestyle there. You absolutely, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So before we go, tell us only because I am as uneducated about this as anyone, tell us about the, the Tai Chi and the other, um, give us a little history of those. I should have asked you this earlier in the podcast, but um, tell us a, like, what are the, some of the foundational elements of that? What are they about? Um, I know that they are um, connected with with the mind body, and I know that they're ancient. Um, and I'm going to get this wrong, but probably Asian um, yeah. in, mm-hmm. in nature, right? So tell us a little bit about those, um, since people yeah, are so, yeah. So qigong, so qigong and tai chi, right? So okay. qigong. Think about. Um, so if we just break that down for a second, qigong is spelled Q I G O N G. Mm-hmm. So qi gong. So qi, Q-I, is the word that the ancient Chinese would use for, it's actually, to say energy is actually too simplistic, but let's just say energy, okay. right? Because it's, it's actually the energy that makes up everything. It's qi is what makes birds fly. It's what makes babies born, be born. It's what makes planets rotate around one another. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's everything. You know, in science, actually, they've discovered something called dark matter. Mm-hmm. And there's actually dark matter, when you read about it in the science literature, sounds a lot like the way that the ancient Taoists described qi, by the way. So okay. it's kind of... It's it's kind of interesting. Um, so qi is, en- is energy, but qi is also the word for breath in the Chinese language. So energy and breath are the same word. Now, gong means to cultivate, to practice, or to work. So qi gong means breath practice, if you mm-hmm. want to think about it like that. Right. It's like very awesome. similar to yeah, asana pranayama. Pranayama, right? pranayama yeah. is, is breath practice That's in right, the Hindu. Right. So we like to say that if you were doing breath practices north of the Himalayas 5,000 years ago, you were doing Qigong. If you're doing breath practices south of the Himalayas 5,000 years ago, you're doing pranayama and yoga, yeah. right? So they're sister sciences. They're yeah, very, very yeah. similar. Now, based on different cultures, obviously, because the the Chinese culture are different, but so Qigong is really about breath cultivation to help enhance life force energy. So we're energetic beings, according mm-hmm. to the Chinese. And actually Western science now has also um, proven that, that we are energetic beings right. by, uh, by every scientific parameter that's ever been measured. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are energy. So 
though Qi, so qigong has a whole bunch of subs it's been around for 5000 years right so just like yoga yoga's been around for 5000 years so there's hatha yoga there's kripalu yoga there how many different yogas are there so like many. thousands, thousands. <laughs> so same thing with qigong so one of the qigongs is tai chi ah okay so it, okay, it so, kind of falls under that umbrella exactly yeah so tai chi is a martial art Mm-hmm. Um, about 300 years old, again, from China. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it means supreme ultimate balance or supreme ultimate fist when you think about it. So Tai Chi uh, lives into all of the elements of Qigong. So there's principles that are associated with Qigong and Tai Chi, um, which, which is what binds all of the different Qigong forms, binds them all together are the principles of Qigong. Things like, very similar to, to things in yoga, upright spine really long spine, coordinated breathing, moving slowly and fluidly in rounded motions, moving from the core of our body, what we call our dantian, um, doing what we call silk reeling practices, where we do these spiral practices in our bodies, smiling, you know, kind of like an inherent lightheartedness. Like these are all features of every kind of qigong, no matter which one you're practicing. Mm-hmm. But really at its heart, you know, qigong probably at its, at its very early hearts, very similar to yoga probably, we're probably really um, ritualistic, shamanic practices, the way that people connected to nature or the divine, uh, the way they saw the divine source of all being, right, is probably what those practices were initially. Not till, not till more recently have they become really focused on health, health propagation, mm-hmm. um, because they actually do that very, very well also. So mm-hmm. if you want to think about it, Qigong and Tai Chi both now are really used for health um, more than anything else. Same, it's very similar to yoga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super fascinating. So yeah, I've I've actually I think participated in one of those Tai Chi in the park kind of days, yeah. but no one really gave us any explanation of of the history of it. And I certainly I've not I had not even heard of of Qigong, so I didn't understand that that umbrella yeah. factor. But it makes perfect sense, especially for me as a as a you know yoga instructor uh, at being able to kind of connect those those dots and those similarities. And yeah, North Hemisphere, South Hemisphere makes perfect yeah. sense. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been super fun. So uh, as we wrap up, um, any kind of advice for the everyday person on how to, I mean, we talked, I know it goes back to probably your four principles, but any other kind of words of wisdom that you would want to leave uh, listeners with in terms of uh, the importance of connecting mind and body? Yeah. Well, I think the, the most important thing is um, ask yourself, how, how healthy and well you really want to be. I mean, like, like really like in your heart of hearts, like how, and it doesn't matter to me. Some people don't want to be healthy and well at all. And you know, that's fine for them. Um, And some people really want to be healthy and well, but there's something in the way of it. There's something blocking it. So my first question is for you is like, how decide for yourself, how healthy and well do you really want to be? And then ask yourself if um, what, what type of time, does that equate to for you? Is it five minutes a day? Is it two minutes a day? Is it like one minute a day? And again, it doesn't matter to me, but whatever number that is, take that time to just be kind of be quiet and check in internally and become aware of something that you're not ordinarily aware of. That's going already going on inside of you. There's something already going on inside of every one of us that we're just not paying attention to because we're so busy paying attention to everything else. And usually we're paying attention to all the things that we pay attention to all the time anyway, right? right? And they're mostly the problems that we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So so just take a moment, ask yourself, how important is it for me to be really healthy and well? 
What does that equate to for you? And then take that amount of time each day and just become quiet and ask yourself, what is going on in my experience that I'm not normally paying attention to? Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much. Um, in the show notes, I will put a, a link to how to get in touch with you if people want Great. to follow up and also your bio. But um, it's been so fun. Thank you so much for being here with me and, and chatting up all things mind-body. I've loved this. You got it, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. This was a super, super time. Thanks. This has been Dissecting Education with your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks, a production of In Pursuit Research. Outcomes-driven, impact-focused. Thanks, and we'll see you on another episode soon.